Dr. Gary Mendoza. Um, I've been a personal trainer for 28 years. I've got a first degree in applied human nutrition and my PhD is in men's weight management um, with quite a focus on behavior change within that. I'm also a qualified sports dietitian with Sports Dietitians Australia and I've worked with a number of elite athletes and professional football teams in the UK and also in New Zealand as well. Um, and I was head of sports nutrition and applied sports nutrition in Massey University in New Zealand while I was out there. So that's pretty much my background. And I kind of work with everybody from, like I say, elite sport right through to general public. But I've got a real kind of, I guess, passion for behavior change, but yep. also sports performance. And that's 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 how we found you. <laughs> uh-huh. that, that is what we needed, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so we ha- I have a list of questions to ask you and, you know, your expertise, thoughts, and opinions. One of the first ones I have on the list is, what do you think about testing for food allergies? So we know that these little food allergy kits are really popular. And I even know that I have clients that will say, well, I did a food allergy test and it says that I shouldn't eat eggs and I shouldn't eat this and that. So, like, what's going on there? Are these things reliable? And what are your, uh, what do you know, thoughts, opinions about them? The first thing I would say is most of them are not reliable. They're not really based on any good scientific evidence. And there's a number of different ones you can get. There's patches. There's test your hair. It's another one. Um, skin prick test is a, is a popular one. And quite often, if you go health food shops, places like that, they'll do that type of testing. But it's like I always say to people, I said, well, if you go for a test like that, and let's say you come to me for a test, mm-hmm. and I get a needle out, and I put whatever on the end of it, and I jab it in the back of your hand, what do you think is going to happen? It's like, well, if you stick a needle in the back of my hand, it's likely to go red. Well, there you go. And what's likely to happen if it's got something on it? Oh, well, it might swell up a bit. Exactly. So does that prove you've got an allergy? No, it most probably means you don't want needles stuck in the back of your blooming hand. And the problem with that is people see that, they see it going red. And of course, it's done by somebody that's claiming to be a nutritionist. And I'd be really careful with what their qualifications might be. And so psychologically, you're now setting up a link between, well, if that prick test showed me it was red and I've had an expert in a white coat tell me that I am allergic to that, then I must have an allergy. And the next time you have that food, you're quite likely to get some type of reaction because now you're almost, you've set your brain up to go, well, if you have milk or eggs or whatever it is, they've told, wheat is a classic one, they always tell you. Mm-hmm. And so you do have that and now you almost expect something to happen. And so anything you feel or if you think, oh, maybe I am a bit bloated or, oh, I am a bit tired. And so now you are making a psychological link between that food and, and a, a response. And if you allow that to carry on over time, then you won't have a physical allergy. You'll have a psychological allergy. And so these type of tests are really dangerous. That If you look at the literature, I think the figure is, don't quote me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the figure is kind of less than 5% of people are likely to have a really true allergy to food. Mm-hmm. So it's a very small percentage that have got a real... If you think you've got an allergy... Go and see an allergy specialist. And I mean someone that's a qualified doctor, not health food shop or not somebody that's selling kits on the internet. 
Amazon. <laughs> and what they will most probably do, a dietitian, for instance, if they work in allergies, they will often use an exclusion diet. And so literally you exclude a whole bunch of foods and then what you do is over kind of a five-day, six-day period, you add back one food at a time. But you don't just rely on the patient going, oh, yeah, I feel a bit funny on that. They actually measure blood and what have you and analyze it and see if anything goes on. Is there any true immune response to this? Because that's what we mean by an allergy. It's basically we're saying that your body's own immune system starts to work in the wrong way when a certain food comes in. And it's pretty rare that happens because you, the whole of your digestive system is pretty much set up to make sure nothing gets past it other than what should get past it, basically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big believer in them. I think yeah. that they're kind of a money-making scheme. Yeah, money maker scheme definitely is like I kind of look at it like this, Gary. Pretty much, it's interesting. So, like, I find a lot of times that there's some that that gives them like something to almost put blame on or hope. You know, like, oh, I don't feel good when I eat eggs because my my test said that eggs are causing inflammation or whatever it says. But that's just not the the case. You you dig deep into their overall lifestyles or dietary pattern. Like, they're drinking heavily on the weekends like this is there's other factors and why you're having these issues it's not eggs <laughs> you know eggs is going to be the least of your worries and i think it just i think you know they get lost in it and it's it's easier to blame something like that maybe or, or say that I, I think that's it. you're looking to hang your hat on something because then you think well if it's that if i stop doing that suddenly i'll be slim again and it's like no that ain't happening no, it's not. It's um, like my, my favorite mantra to pretty much every client is, listen, it's your lifestyle that got you fat and only changing your lifestyle is going to get you thin again. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like that idea, forget it then because that's what you've got to buy into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually said that the other day. I said, if you want to look fit, you have to have a fit lifestyle. Yeah, so, and a fit mind. And a fit you mind, to, yes. Your mind, yes, absolutely. You have to kind of believe that you're that fit, healthy person. Mm -hmm. Because again, we've got research that shows that if you start trying to get a bit healthier, lose a bit of weight, and I don't like the term weight, I think we should talk about lose a bit of fat. Mm -hmm. um, but if you start that and go down that route, you also need to adopt a mindset that says, I'm a fit, healthy person. Mm -hmm. And if you keep telling your brain that, you will tend to make choices that a fit, healthy person will make. And mm -hmm. so not only do we have to retrain our physiology, we've got to retrain our psychology as well. Yep, absolutely. It's a great point, Gary. How can a client optimize their uh, energy for performance through nutrition? So, you know, what's the best way if they're doing cardio or strength training, how can they opti optimize the goals with that in their nutrition? How can they put that together? The first thing is you really do need to speak to a dietitian or a sports dietitian, really, because the first thing you're going to have to do is work out what your overall calorie requirements are. So calories in, calories out is basically what it boils down to. Once you know what your overall calorific requirement is, you then have to understand how to break that down for the macronutrients. So how much of that should be carbohydrate, how much of that should be lipids or fats, and how much of that should be protein. Once you've worked that out, you then have to work out at what time am I going to consume that. And that will very much depend on your training. If you're just training once a day, then you can most probably get away with 
a good pre-exercise meal, normally two to three hours before, which will be predominantly carbohydrate, but that's using some of your carbohydrate from your total for the day. You then want a recovery meal. Um, and again, you'd work that out based on body weight, what type of training and what have you. And then you spread the rest of the calories through the day. Now, if you're just training once a day, it's not too critical, the recovery meal. As long as you eat the, your required calories through the next 24 hours, you will recover the muscle glycogen, which is the fuel your body uses or your muscles in particular use when you're running, lifting weights, whatever it might be, whatever the sport is. If you train twice a day, then it becomes critical, that recovery meal. Because effectively, let's just say you train in the morning, and again, doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it be weights, cardio, whatever, you've, your meal after that training, although it's your recovery meal from the training, it's also your pre-event meal for the next training bout, because that's likely to be three, four, five, six hours time. And so within that window, you've got to recover the muscle glycogen so as the body's ready to go again. And you might think, well, why is that that important? It doesn't matter if it's a bit depleted. But if you kind of think of it as this is us topped up, we've got a full tank and a car. Mm -hmm. If each time we use the car, we don't quite top it up, by the end of the week, we run out of fuel. And it's the same for an athlete. If you're training that regularly, especially like I say, if you're training twice a day, then recovery is really important because otherwise, as you get towards the end of the week, your fuel will be running low and it then means the quality of your training will start to go because you've got lack of fuel. And so you might be still doing the sessions and thinking, oh, I'm doing a really good session. But actually, if you're properly fueled, you most probably have a more optimal kind of session, for want of a better word. So when I work with elite athletes, we look at their pre-event, we look at their during-event, and we look at their post-event meals. We also look at what their training schedule is, what type of training they're doing, how often they're training, and then meals are all worked around that. It's, it's quite complicated. It's not just, oh, just eat enough carbohydrates. It, there's a lot more to it. And I think if you want to perform optimally as an athlete, or even as kind of an amateur athlete, like let's just say you decide... I want to be able to do a 10K or a marathon. Right, okay. And really, you should take on board a dietitian that understands sports nutrition because they'll be able to optimize your nutrition so as then your training is optimized as well. Yeah, so it's very individualized. It's based on your goals, your sport, what you're trying to achieve. So working yeah. professional is going to be the best for it, you. It's really quite technical. And, that, and we've only just discussed... Protein, fat, carbohydrate. We haven't even yeah. talked numbers. Yeah. And once you've kind of got all of that sorted, then you can start to think about, okay, what supplements might we use? What might improve from it? And then that opens up a whole nother Pandora's box because it's like, okay, which supplements work? What type of training are you doing? Is it aerobic, anaerobic, power-based, short burst? What? And so different supplements will work for different scenarios. So then you're trying to fit that around that as well. So, yeah, it's not straightforward. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. No, that's really great information. Um, okay, so recently, April and I did a podcast mm -hmm. where we kind of talked about functional medicine and uh, thyroid, hormones, and uh, fat loss. So this question is, uh, Gary, is it hormones or is it my diet? She diet every time. There may, um, 
don't don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting hormones. And when you're perimenopause or menopause, your hormones are all over the shop, and they will undoubtedly have an impact. But the bottom line is, it's still what's your body doing with the calories. So at least if you've optimised your diet, your body's got half a chance of sorting its hormones out. But if you're just going to try and blame it on hormones, nah, it's, that is that is not the answer. There's, there's no evidence to support that at all. So it is going to boil down to how good your diet is. There are certain things you can do within the diet that are going to help you when you're kind of, depending on uh, where you are in your menstrual cycle, that will have kind of an impact on that. So type of foods you eat, whether you, for instance, soy, things like that, because of estrogen, things like that. So there are things you can manipulate, but again, it, you really need the advice of a professional. I wouldn't kind of go on social media, because if you go on social media, somebody will be telling you, oh, it's your cortisol is all out of balance, and that's why you can't lose fat. And yeah. somebody else will be telling you, oh, you've got a slow thyroid. I mean, that's that's the, the classic one I hear all the time. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, I've got a slow metabolism. It's like, no, you haven't got a slow metabolism. You've got a fast mouth and you're eating too much. But <laughs> Yes, Gary. <laughs> I, I said on the podcast, I made this uh, quote and it is, it is the symptoms of a thyroid, you know, thyroid disease is the same symptoms of a shit diet, like a shit lifestyle. So like, yeah. would, like wouldn't you want to go through your lifestyle and sort that out before you want to take on a thyroid disease and have to take medication for the rest of your life. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, so, going thyroid scene or whatever. It's like, yeah, no, you don't. Really necessary. Yeah, so. it, it, it's a shame really, because we, tr- we train doctors mm-hmm. to look for a symptom. And then when they know what the symptom is, we, we say, Oh, we'll give a drug for that then. Mm-hmm. And I really do wish that we would train doctors to look for a symptom and then go, what is it about your lifestyle that's causing that? Absolutely. Because we should always address lifestyle first. If you look at most of the problems we've got, like around coronary heart disease, stroke, diabetes, all these type of things, most of them, there's a big lifestyle fix you can make before you even go down the route of statins and everything else. So it's like, sort your lifestyle out first. At least you're giving your body half a chance mm-hmm. to kind of do the best it can. And your body's pretty clever. So yeah, always look at lifestyle first. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable when you have a complete lifestyle change in all aspects. And you know, it may take you time. It could take a year or more. It could take six months. Everyone's different, right? But once it starts, once you get the ball rolling, it's amazing how things just follow. You know, you go up for your follow-up blood work and you've got your cholesterol's good, your blood pressure's good, um, you feel better, your energy's higher, your sleep is better. You know, it's a process, but once it gets going, it kind of, everything goes together. Yeah, and and it doesn't, I mean, it long took, I always say to people, how long did it take you to get to this weight? Uh-huh. And I go, oh, when I was 16, I was this way. And when I was 20, I was this. And when I was in my 30s, I was this. Mm-hmm. And now I'm hit nearly 40, I'm this. I'm like, okay, so it's taken us the best part of 20 years to get there. I said, you have to buy into the fact that it might take 20 years to get back again. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, no, it can't be that long. I said, well, that's the truth of the matter. It hopefully will be quicker. Right. But you do have to kind of accept that if it's taken this long to do all that damage... To unpick it all might take us a while. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't want people disheartened because I've got 
any number of coaching clients at the moment, and we're kind of eight eight to nine weeks into the program with them. And these are people that have been diagnosed um, as pre-diabetic. Their HbA1c is 42 or higher. So that's a marker we look for in terms of predicting diabetes. And I've got, I would say, at least 50% of them have actually managed to reverse their HbA1c in about eight or nine weeks just by making lifestyle changes and improving their diet. So there is real hope out there that if you're willing to stick at it for a couple of months, you will start to see benefits. And you might maybe the weight's not falling off, but a lot of them will say, well, my bloods are good now. I feel better. I've got more energy. And then what will follow over the next 4, 8, 12, 16 weeks, whatever, will be the weight loss. Absolutely. And so as long as you're kind of willing to be patient, stick at it, it does work. We've got loads of evidence to show that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you said that because I actually was thinking about the other day is like a lot of people are so focused on the outside, but you've got to remember there's stuff going on on the inside. (laughs) And sometimes things are working on the inside first. You know, you're not really seeing that uh, during the process, just kind of like what you mentioned. But I'll have clients come to me like in four weeks, they're like, man, I feel better. My bowel movements are better. I have more energy. The scale's not moving. But look at like, it's just like what you just said, Gary, you know, and then that's that that follows. It follows suit and you keep at it. It's a health investment. I always say to people, I said, like you, like you rightly say, things are changing inside. You might not realize it. It's like they've had their blood tested again and now their HbA1c is in a good range. They would not have been able to tell that without a blood test. But clearly something was happening that's reversed it. So what else is happening? You know, is their heart getting better? Are their arteries getting clearer of fat? This type of thing. You don't know. You're you're investing in your life when you're in your 60s, 70s, and hopefully into your 80s. Yeah, but if absolutely. you don't make that investment now, you ain't going to be seeing 70s and 80s because you will have died of heart attack or you'll be wheelchair-bound or chair-bound and have actually a really rubbish quality of life. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. about investing. It's a bit like we always tell people, well, you must have a pension fund and you must have savings. Well, your health's the same. And so this is an investment in your health. Yeah. I think it's sometimes really hard for young. I know at my, I know at, at my age, but I, I, and I know when I hit the transition, um, you know, this psychologically, when you get to a certain age, you start really thinking about your future more. You start thinking about, just it kind of hits you overnight. And I don't know how to explain that. Just every anyone here watching or watches this later, um, there are some that younger that it happens, but most of the time I, I feel like it's about 35 and up. <laughs> and you yeah. and you start going, I gotta get it together. I, I have to at this point get it together. I gotta get my shit together and I gotta get this done because I'm not getting younger. And every single day that goes by is one day that I could have got started with something. It could have, it could be anything. Just get started. You know, and, and I think the, good, the 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 really positive message is it doesn't matter what age you start. No, it doesn't. Some of the clients that I've got in the program, they're 60, 65, Maybe. and they're already seeing benefits. So obviously, Maybe. the earlier you start, the better you're going to be because you're yeah. you're limiting the amount of damage that's going to occur. Absolutely, but never too late to start. It really isn't. Yeah. Yep, it really isn't. And and I've seen that. I mean, there are some influencers out there that are in their 70s and 80 and they started bodybuilding, muscle and nutrition and they got it right within five years. They're completely different people, you know? What's the best advice to really get your head in the game to make a lifestyle change? 
I would say have a really clear goal. Mm-hmm. Be really crisp and, and not just, oh, I'd like to be a bit fitter or I want to get into a smaller address. Get a really clear goal that's really got a meaning for you. And that might be, I don't know, be able to play with my kids when I'm, I'm my grandkids, maybe, or even my great grandkids, but some type of goal. And that goal then has to be emotionally anchored. So it's got a really strong pull because there are going to be days where you're just like, oh, do you know what? I can't be bothered today. But mm-hmm. if you've set your goal really well, and I'm sure it's, t- it's test one of your clients or yes, whatever, fine. hopefully you've done emotionally anchoring the goal. So that emotionally anchored goal is powerful because now every time you're thinking, should I have the fizzy drink or should I just have some more water? All you ask yourself is, does this move me towards my goal or away from it? Yep. And nine times out of ten, you're going to go, I want the thing that moves me towards it. You'll make the better choice. Mm-hmm. You won't do it every time, but if the majority of the time you're making the best choice, that is really going to move your lifestyle on. And then slowly, those choices will become the norm for you. You won't. You, it won't have to be a conscious thing. What you'll find is you'll slowly start to adopt better habits and you'll get to a point where, where somebody will have to point out to you, well, if you notice that you always do this now, or you always do that, and you're like, oh, I didn't know it. I never really noticed I did that. But that's, it's a healthy habit that you've now established. And that was that will slowly shift the lifestyle. And it sticks to you and you don't even think about it. You just do it, you know, when you start making changes and switching them up. So, um, and, and I remember, I, re, I mean, I've had my own transformation. I used to weigh, I think it was at, at my heaviest, I was like 175, 180. And, and um, a mom, stay-at-home mom, uh, I never did any kind of exercise, never lifted a weight, just, you know. But I just remember in bed one day, I just woke up and I said, enough's enough. Enough's enough. I'm done. I'm yeah. tired. I'm tired of feeling tired. I'm, I'm tired of looking the way I look. I'm tired of feeling the way I look, feel. And so I just remember, and it's crazy because um, I had just started taking classes for nutrition. <laughs> so uh-huh. you know, just started. And I had no idea this would tie into what I do for a living at the moment. But I have been in all my clients' positions. So I, I know firsthand how it feels. And I just remember going, you know what? I know I have to change so much. But I'm just yeah. going to do one thing at a time. And I did Keep that. Away, it took me seven years. And I don't want to discourage anybody out there because everybody's on their own timeline. I'm just saying that it took time to get it down and get it right. Us. And I'm, look at me, like I've still got plenty of time left. So that really wasn't that much, you know, in retrospect. So, um, I, I think, and, that, and that's why right at the start that I said, look, if, you, if your lifestyle got you fat, only your lifestyle is going to get you thin. That's yep. a big bind. Have it getting to a point where you're going. I'm going to change my lifestyle. That in itself is a big decision. Mm-hmm. And then changing your lifestyle is an even bigger and harder decision. But if you've got support, you'll do it. I mean, what I've seen with some of my clients now is like some of them are about to go on holiday, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm going on holiday, but I will try and be good. I'm going to have the old good day. I'm going to make sure I walk." I'm going to try and make at least a few good choices. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, listen to yourself. Would you have said that six weeks ago? And they're like, oh, no, I've never not realized that. Then, So already that things are changing in their brain because they're now approaching this very differently 
to how they would have right at the start. So it doesn't actually take too long, you know, six, eight weeks. And now they're starting to already think about, well, I can make a better choice there. I could do that slightly different. Or I'll get some information on that to find out a better way of doing it. So, yeah, it's definitely worth hanging in there. Don't look at this as a eight-week program or a 12-week program. It's a lifelong program. Yeah. It, it takes 12 weeks for me to give you all the tools, but how long it takes you to use them? Well, if you think how long it's taking you to establish those habits, whatever they might be, we're talking years, decades possibly. Absolutely. But we're not going to unpick that in a hurry. No, we're not. Definitely not. Okay, so, you know, uh, April and I talk about and encourage like slow fat loss versus rapid. So um, do you want to give us your insight on that? Benefits of slow fat loss versus rapid fat loss and why we need to take it slow. The only rapid fat loss that exists are a surgeon's knife and liposuction. <laughs> that is it. Okay. If you... If, if we called the biggest loser for that program on telly, yes. if we re rename the biggest loser, the biggest fat loser, mm -hmm. it would be the world's most boring television program because every single contestant will pretty much reduce their body fat by about the same bit every week, regardless of what they're doing. Because your body can only metabolize fat so, so much at a time. There's a kind of a finite physiological limit. And so if you're losing more than a pound to two pound of weight, you are not likely losing much more than about a pound of fat. And that's why I said I don't like weight loss. I like fat loss. Mm -hmm. Because five pound on the scales is not necessarily five pound of fat. It's going to be water. You might have lost lean tissue which is the last thing you want to lose because that maintains your metabolism. And and so you've got to just buy into this. It's it's kind of hair in the tortoise. It's slow and steady wins the race here. Mm -hmm. So if you're losing about a pound to two pound a week, you've got it spot on. Yeah. What what what's the best way you need patience? How how could they go about getting patience? <laughs> That comes back to your goal again, though. Yes. Because if you're going strong and you're educated about what is possible, then you're just going to go, well, I'm going to stick with this because that goal is really important to me. The thing is, don't get too focused on fat. Right. Because, okay, fat loss is important and you do want to reduce it. You want to be able to get into that smaller dress size, whatever it might be, smaller jeans, I don't know. But you've got all the other benefits that are coming along at the same time. So like we've just talked about, you know, the cardiovascular benefits, improve, improvements in your overall blood profile, mm -hmm. greater energy, better sleep, better cognitive function. You're kind of more alert. You're making better decisions. I work with a lot of businessmen and women, for that matter, that are kind of CEOs of companies. And one of the things I'll say to them, I said, if you're getting up in the morning and going into meetings first thing and you're not bothering with breakfast, mm -hmm. how are you performing? Oh, well, I do quite well. I said, yeah, but would you like to perform better? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're having breakfast, you're fueling the body, you're kind of alert, you've got better blood sugar levels, brain is an obligate user of glucose, you'll just make better decisions. 
And they went, oh, never thought of it like that. And so that's a benefit, but you won't see that on the scales or anything. You can't measure it, but you can't get a tape measure out and go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm thinking better now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But these are all things you've got to kind of start to become aware of yourself. So it's not just about, scales are okay, and they're one outcome measure, but I would never hang a whole program on that mm -mm. because there is so much other stuff changing that, that most probably is more beneficial actually than just the fat loss. So by all means, measure that, but have other goals as well. You know, can you now run up a flight of stairs? Right. One of the things we used to do with our guys that took part in my research, the way we measured their fitness was they walked around their block at home mm -hmm. and then they measured how long it took them. And then at the end of it, how did they feel? How out of breath? And they kind of scored that on a naught to 10 scale. And then we'd repeat that test in four weeks' time. Right, how quick can you go around now? How do you feel at the end? How quickly do you recover? And and they were like astounded. They're like, well, I really hadn't noticed that. And yet now I can do that quicker and I recover quicker. I said, well, straight away then we've got a massive benefit. You've got better energy and you've got better recovery. But you haven't lost very much on the scales. And they're like, yeah, but that's just... And then they start to realize, yeah, but that's just as important, actually. I'm like, yeah, right, it is. But obviously, when you start, you can't kind of see that. No. So, set yourself some other goals. Is this something that you can do at the moment? Or let's just say, I know, it's unloading the shopping from your car. Do you feel knackered when you've unloaded six bags and dragged them in the house? If you do, fine. Kind of see how you feel. How quickly do you recover? Now, in four to six weeks' time, do the same thing again with your six bags of shopping. How do you feel now? And if you feel a bit better, then whatever program you're doing is doing the job. Mm -hmm. And that's the real benefit now because you've got more energy, you're recovering better. There's just so much more going on, you know, and that I think focusing on those things like you're talking about kind of gets you through it as well. You know what I mean? And I, I also notice with clients coming in, they'll come in gung-ho about fat loss, but they'll start noticing all these other changes and all these things. And kind of like what you said, they'll start slowing down on the fat loss part, like just so super focused on it. And they start kind of just living day to day and just making decisions as they go and keeping their goals in mind. And before they know it, it's happening. And then they're like, it's crazy. So, yeah. And and it's a mental benefit. I mean, we always talk about physical fitness, yeah. but we really should talk about mental fitness. Mm -hmm. So you feel a bit better about yourself because you've made better decisions today. Mm -hmm. Maybe it wasn't perfect, but nonetheless, you made some better decisions. So now, psychologically, you feel a bit better because you think, well, you know what? I'm treating myself a bit better now. And if you start treating yourself a bit better, your self-esteem starts to grow. So now you feel, you, you feel a bit taller. You mm -hmm. kind of carry yourself a bit better. You've got a little bit more confidence. All of these things start to accumulate. And as long as you can try and pick up on them, it will really move you forward. And like you say, it will shift your goal from fat to, actually, no, that's just as important. And it's great that I feel like that. And I like getting up in the morning now. I don't feel like the day ahead is going to be a real chore or whatever it might be. But make sure you note those things. And I think this is why I, I like my clients to journal. Because I like them to kind of spend just a five-minute spell, either in the morning or just before they go to bed, and just write, how has the day been? How are you feeling? What were the what were the kind of wins today? Literally five minutes, do that. Then you can look back at that over three, four weeks, and you go, wow, look at all the stuff I've done. 
Yeah. You remember it if you don't, don't write it down every day. But if you write it down every day, and now when you flick back through a kind of month's worth, you're like, well, this program's really working for me. Look at all the pluses. And, and not one of those pluses was fat loss. But what they're doing is creating a new lifestyle that one day they're going to wake up and be like, oh, shit, I've lost 15 pounds. <laughs> yeah. It's almost it's almost like the last thing that happens. It's the last thing that happens and it's... It starts it's, to happen as a consequence of the better choices you make early on. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's just a case that I, and I'm forever putting the same kind of feedback to clients is that stick with the process. You're doing the right things. Just trust in the process. Yeah, trust it and keep going. Since we kind of just talked about that, what are some ways to help get over a discouraging mindset? You know, um, I know I have clients that feel like they're doing all the things, they're checking all the boxes, and they're not getting, they're not, even though they feel good, they feel better, and they're trying really hard to, to focus on those things like we just discussed, but still in their head is like, why have I not lost any body fat? Like, they still like it's it, they're like they're they're still trying to trust the process but it's just kind of like how can they work through that discouraging mindset i mean they have they are a little upset you know not going to lie they're a little upset they're a little discouraged they're keep going but it's how do you get through that rough time when you when you have it i know what'd you say gary police yourself talk what are you telling yourself mm-hmm. so if you say to yourself oh i'm not doing very well what you now do is you, you imagine you're in a courtroom and you're in the dock and you say, oh, I'm not doing very well. And the defense lawyer says, what is your proof for that? And and then you're like, oh, well, I didn't feel that good. It's like, how did you measure you didn't feel that good then? Oh, well, um, well, no, it wasn't that bad. And okay, maybe that's not right then. Okay, so what else you got? And, and by kind of being that kind of bugging away at it, going, give me the evidence for it or not having it, <laughs> yeah. you start to realize that actually it's not true. What I'm telling myself here is not true. And if you can kind of get, to, and don't let self-talk go because it might seem innocuous just saying to yourself, oh, I've had a rubbish day, it'll be better tomorrow. But rather than just saying that and believing it, when you say, oh, I've had a rubbish day, it'll be better tomorrow, Question it. Why was it rubbish? What did you manage to do today? Mm-hmm. You managed to get up on time, so it can't be that rubbish. It's like, did you? what did you achieve? Oh, well, I did manage to get to the gym. It wasn't that good a session. So what? You got to the gym. That was good. So suddenly, that rubbish day isn't that rubbish. There might have been a few things that have gone wrong. And we always remember the things that go wrong, the kind of, for want of a better word, the bad stuff. The negative, yep. You never remember all the good points. And so by questioning that, oh, I've had a rubbish day, you start to realize, well, actually, it wasn't that rubbish because I did this and I did that and I was able to do that and I stuck with that and I pretty much stuck with my meal plan that we agreed and I managed to get out for a run or did my weights or whatever. And so now you just start to think, well, okay, that no, wasn't too bad, but I'll do the same again tomorrow then. And and that will build on that. But the more you get into that habit of don't let thoughts like that get in the way and always say that, where's your evidence for that? I like if that. you can't support it, then throw it away. If you cannot give me good evidence that would stand up in court, forget it. Go away. Not interested. 
I think they're more hard on themselves because they woke up wanting to do all the things and all the things didn't get done and they're all or nothing mindset kicks in. And at the end of the day, they're hyper-focused on the two things they didn't get accomplished. They could accomplish five things out of the seven on their list, but the two things like haunt them. Why? You know, and that's where it goes back to throw it out. I, you know? I think also we're all, we're our own worst critic. Yeah. We're the most probably harsh on ourselves than yeah. like... I would be if I was your coach. Yeah. As your coach, I'd be a bit more encouraging and I'd be like, oh, well, that doesn't matter too much, but you did this. Right. Whereas when you're looking at it, you're going, yeah, but that was really rubbish and that was terrible and that was awful. And it's like, so we're always our harshest critics. And so that's why you need to kind of this, oh, hang on, let's put a break on this. Let's get real about it. Where is the actual evidence? And, and once you start to kind of really look, is that true? You start to realize most probably it's not. And most probably you've had so many wins. A classic case, I had a woman come to me a while ago that I was working with. And we were talking about, because the big thing in weight management is nearly always, um, and I'm a firm believer in this, it's preparation and planning. Yep. Because yep. the biggest reason you hear for like bad choices, poor meal choices, I, I didn't have time. That's the one I hear the most, I would have thought. And I and and she says, and I said, right. So the key thing for you is going to be over the next few weeks is going to be preparation, planning, getting on top of everything. And she says, oh yeah, but I'm no good at that. And I said to her, where's your evidence for that? She goes, oh, I'm just rubbish. I said, you've got two kids. You manage to get them up. You get them to school on time. You get them dressed. You keep their clothes clean. You plan meals for them. You pick them up from school. You get them to bed on time and you get them to do their homework. How is that rubbish timekeeping? And she went, oh, I've never thought of it like that. She just didn't realize she had all these skills, but it's just nobody had really pointed them out to her. And now she was looking, put, putting a kind of spotlight on it and going, Oh, actually, yeah, I'm not that bad because I managed to organize all them things. And I've never thought of that as time management. But yes, it is. That's really good time management. So rather than look for where your weaknesses are, look for where your strengths are and build on them. Well said. You hear that? You hear that, ladies? You're listening to Gary? <laughs> okay. The question is, what have you seen to be the most common disease illness related to a bad diet or unhealthy lifestyle? Diabetes. All day long. Because people people kind of ignore diabetes at your peril. I think people just think, oh, well, if you've got diabetes, I might have to take insulin or whatever. But it's like you do not want to overlook the severity of the symptoms that go with diabetes. We're talking about going blind, losing your foot, amputating limbs. It's like it's not nice. And diabetes can be sitting there lingering and then suddenly you've got it and it's like, oh, now what do I do? And, and we do know that if it's type 2 diabetes, just by improving lifestyle and improving diet, you can reverse it. Mm -hmm. And so that is far and away one of the biggest blights on society. And they reckon there's like an underlying number of people that haven't even got a clue they've actually got diabetes. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of living with it without even knowing it. So God knows what damage that's doing because undiagnosed diabetes is most probably even worse because now you're doing nothing about it. And then, it, so diabetes is definitely for me top of the tree and then obesity. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think there's any argument now that obesity is a disease. The World Health Organization recognizes it. Absolutely. It's a disease that's caused by lifestyle, but it is a disease. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, again, with lifestyle, we could reverse. And when you look at all the things that are associated with obesity, and obviously diabetes is up there, coronary heart disease, stroke, it's like none of that's good. So they're definitely the bit. And, and the irony being that they're the ones that we can do something about without taking a single drug almost. Yeah. And I think, um, I'm not sure. Do you know, do you happen to know statistics on diabetes roughly? Where you, where, really? Do you know that, what's diabetes rate where you live? I, it's high in the United States. Off the top of my head, I don't know, but it's, it's really, it's a it's big high there. It's high there too. So it's probably just everywhere. I know it's a massive, and it'll be the same for you in the States. Uh-huh. It'll be a massive drain on your health service. Yeah. It will most probably that diabetes and obesity will most probably be the biggest drain on health services. Yeah. And the medication like insulin and all that's getting more expensive and, you know, like kind of like related to what you just said, basically. And, um, it's, it's all preventable. And then, of course, when you have type two, it's, uh, you can, you can fix that with your diet and your lifestyle changes. So. And, and people think, oh, well, it's okay because I can take a pill for it and I, you know, metformin or whatever. Mm-hmm. What you've got to think about, whenever you're going to start introducing a drug, I don't care for what it is, whether it be statins, metformin, even a blooming paracetamol, mm-hmm. that's chemicals you're putting in your body that at the end of the day, your body didn't really want to have. And so you only have to, any of those drugs, I mean, nobody ever reads it, but whenever you're given drugs, there's always a sheet in there that tells you what all the side effects are. And normally that side effect, there's there's a ton of them. It doesn't affect most people, but there's a reason that sheet's in there. It's because drugs aren't just about, or oh, they might treat that. They come with a whole bunch of other problems. Mm-hmm. And so you really shouldn't, just, you shouldn't accept that, oh, well, I'll just take a pill for that. It'll be all right. You should be thinking, how can I avoid taking a pill and not need it in the first place? Yep. Because that is what is going to extend your longevity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. I have one more question because I just thought of it. What about Ozempic? What's your thoughts on Ozempic? About what? Ozempic, the weight loss, the weight loss drug. Oh, right. The way that, again, it's a drug. How natural is that to put something into your body that's supposedly going to burn off fat, melt off fat, whatever it, the chemical reaction is? That that should really you shouldn't be looking at that as oh that's going to be my savior savior mm-hmm. you should be looking at that as that's the last resort when I've tried everything else and I mean everything else and lifestyle being top of that list mm-hmm. lifestyle so good diet regular exercise and not even regular regular activity I don't even like the word exercise I, I prefer activity like get out walk whatever it might be just get active. Mm-hmm. If you tried that and then that doesn't work after six months, eight months, then maybe we are at a point where drugs would help you. But mm-hmm. we should never see drugs as our first port of call yep. because we we don't know what the long-term side effects of that drug are at the moment. It's not. only just been declared safe, which most probably means it's had a year, maybe three years clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So what happens in 20 years' time when somebody goes, oh, if you've been on that drug, it does this. Mm-hmm. A bit bloody late there. And it's like, oh, you're telling me now, it's too late. What happens if you, they stop taking you it? You just don't know. 
Or what happens if they stop taking it cold turkey and they have and they their lifestyle hasn't changed? Yeah. It's got your fat comes straight back on. Yeah. yeah. And is there, you know, how long can you take that drug for safely? We won't know that. That's they won't have done clinical trials on that. Mm-hmm. So there, there's much as they'll say, oh, it's safe and it works. And I think for some people, it is going to be the only answer. Right. That should really be your last thing you're thinking about when you've kind of exhausted every single other option then maybe look at that. But until you can honestly say, I have tried A, B, C, D, E, F, G, then mm-hmm. do not even think of that as, as your answer because it most probably isn't and it will not be risk-free. There is going to be something about that drug because if it's able to help your body burn fat, then that's a metabolic pathway your body uses for your brain, for your physiology, for your heart, whatever. So what impact is it having on any of those areas? And that question, we will not know for a long time. Exactly. And it'll, it'll be too late then if you've been taking it for five, ten years and then suddenly some study comes up and goes, oh, we now associate this with that. And it's like, oh, but I've been doing that for ten years. It's like, unlucky. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I just wanted to get your little take on that, which I feel the, the same as you. So that's good. What do you recommend for knowing whether you're eating the proper amount per day meal aside from results? So that's a good question. Ask April or Ka- or Shalina. But the bottom line is, <laughs> in, even when we put people into scientific studies, we're mm-hmm. not too sure what they need. So the way we work out what somebody needs in terms of their overall calories, first off, and this is before we even start to break it down into macronutrients, We put people into what we call a thermogenic chamber. And so what a thermogenic chamber does is it measures the amount of heat you're giving off and CO2, things like that. And so by measuring all these parameters, we can then accurately work out what somebody's calorific requirements are. Even that's got a drawback, though, because now you've put them into an unnatural environment. So they're now not behaving the way they would normally the best that we've got at the moment and, and what we use uh, in studies now, I used this when I was in New Zealand, is what we call doubly labelled water. And so this is water that's got um, radioactive isotopes on it. And so we can work out the washout rate. So we just get people, they keep the urine in that and we measure it. And from that, we can then fairly accurately work out what their metabolic rate is. Doubly labelled water costs about, well, certainly when I was in New Zealand, I think it was about $500 a litre. So it's not something that everyone's going to be doing sometime soon. And then you've got to be able to analyse it afterwards. And so all we do at the moment is we use some kind of indirect measures. And so the easiest indirect measure is you work out your basal metabolic rate. So that's the amount of calories you burn when you're at rest. Mm. Now, a quick if you just want to do this quickly yourself, there are some really complex formulas for this. So there's the Atwater, the Schofield equation, Atchison, there's a, there's a number, M- Mifflin. Same, same um, drawer. If you really want a it's 25 times your weight in kilograms will give you a ballpark figure for how many calories you burn at rest. So bearing in mind, that number, that you, if you work that out now, so whatever you weigh, multiply yourself by 25, that's how many calories you would burn if you lay on a bed and did nothing for 24 hours. 
So what's yours, Shalina? I'm doing it. 1420 and 1420 is matches the Harris Benedict and all the online calculators. And I yeah, already... very close. It's just like, it's, it's, it's amazing now that. So that's how yeah. many. That's how many calories Selena's going to burn if she were to lay on a bed for 24 hours and not move. But now you've got to build activity into that. So you've now got to take that. So we're already saying she needs 1,500 calories just to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to factor in an activity factor, or physical activity ratio, they call it. There's There's a whole load of ways of doing this. When I work with athletes, I get them to record every single activity they do, and then I work out the calories for each of them. It's complicated. As a ballpark figure for the average person, you can normally, again, this is very ballpark, mm -hmm. uh, multiply your basal metabolic rate by the 1.4 or 1.5. And yeah. that will give you a pretty rough idea how many calories you need in a day. And this is rough. And uh, April and I went and did a DEXA and we did the, where you so breathe. We, we did, that'll I, give I, you a good idea because it gives you lean tissue and everything. Yeah, no, I just paired it with what I was going to say, but we did where we breathe the... All right, yeah. So uh, um, uh, What's it called, Gary? Um, the O2. Yeah, so we did that and it, mine came up 1,400. Yeah, there you go. So you can have all this science and actually sometimes... Simple equation, does it? It really is. And, uh, just, I mean, you're you're fit and you train regularly, mm -hmm. so you would either use one point five or possibly even one point six times yeah. your basal metabolic rate. Yeah. So, what does that tell you your calories are for a uh, day then? Twenty twenty one thirty. Yeah. So there you go, straight right. away. So this, oh, let's pick a oh, women two thousand, men two thousand five hundred. It's complete BS because mm -hmm. we're all different. Yeah. So, Bigger, more active, less active, whatever. It, yeah. so it's very individual. And unfortunately, the simple answer to your question is the only way to tell what your calorie requirements are is to get a coach to work it out roughly for you, follow that for a number of weeks and see what effect it has. And then you're either going to need to reduce a bit or increase a bit, depending on what you're trying to achieve. But it really is very much suck it and see. There's no easy way. There's no perfect way of going, this is exactly what you need. Because the other thing that's going to factor into that is, did you enjoy doing that? Because there's no point in you doing this for two or three weeks if it's like really hard work and I don't enjoy it. We've learned nothing from that. So far better that we kind of look at what you're doing normally, change things as we go along, and just see what results we get. So I'm sorry there's not an exact answer, but... That's that's really even when I work with elite athletes, this is what I will work out their overall diet. We'll do all the stuff that we talked about at the start, but it still boils down to week on week, looking at what's happening, looking at how they're feeling, looking at how their training's going, measuring their body fat, and then seeing where we need to adjust. It's not an exact science in that respect. Mm -mm. And you, and and the whole key is adjusting. We start here and we see what happens. And and I adjust yeah. calories for clients all the time. You know, sometimes your BMR is lower than the calculate equation. Sometimes it could be higher. It just depends. Yes, chance your BMR will go up because the body increases your metabolic rate yeah. to try and increase heat to kill the virus or the bug or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So pollution will impact what it is. So there's loads of factors that play into it. Yeah. 
This question I definitely want to get to before we go. Uh, you say, Gary, does your body metabolize or react better to organic, natural protein, lean meats better than protein powders and bars? 100%. Food every time. Don't don't fall into the organic trap. That That's a complete load of BS and all. Mm-hmm. If people claim that food, organic food is better... Explain than, that. Yeah, explain that to them, Gary. Explain, explain why... Explain why organic is bullshit. Right, okay. Um, I'll give you an example of my brother-in-law is a farmer. And so they've got a big, I mean, nothing on the scale that you've got in the US, but nonetheless a big farm. Mm-hmm. The farm next to him claims to be organic, but growing organic crops. So they're not using pesticides or anything like that. Now, in order to qualify as in organic in the UK, and I, I would think the US is pretty similar, mm-hmm. You have to leave the field fallow for, I think it's two years, three years. In other words, let the soil recover, as it were. Then you can start to grow crops on it and you're not allowed to then use chemicals or whatever. But my brother-in-law, they're not organic. He said, so they spray their crops. He says, and there's no way they're putting up a bloody great curtain to the field next door. And those stuff's, of course it's going that way. He said, also, it's going into the soil. Well, where do you think it's going to go once it's in the soil? Right across. So how organic is organic? And then what are the actual benefits? Where is the peer-reviewed evidence that shows that organic meat is better than, I don't know, corn-fed meat or whatever it might be? I mean, we don't want highly processed animals or whatever and kind of battery farming and all that, 100%. That's not good from an animal welfare perspective. But from a pure is this, you know, is the organic carrot better than the average carrot? I doubt it. Not from a kind of health weight management perspective anyway. Mm. Wash your fruits and vegetables and you're good to go. 100%. Wash it and eat it and cook it. Mm-hmm. Job done. And back to the whole foods is going to always outweigh any type of processed. One of the best things you can have in your diet is fruit, veg and good fiber intake. Mm-hmm. We always have this argument about prebiotics, probiotics, and blah, blah. The best prebiotic out there is fiber. And where do you find fiber? It's fruit and veg. Amen. And, and we now associate the gut microbiome. And so that's the bacteria that's in your gut. For those, Some of you might have heard of it. We now talk quite a bit about what we call the gut brain. Because we now know that the gut actually does communicate with the brain. And so between the two of them, your actual brain and your gut brain, that's what's kind of deciding what they're going to metabolize, how much fat we're going to keep, what your blood sugar level should be, all this type of thing. If your gut microbiome is not healthy, then those signals aren't getting set and then something goes wrong somewhere. And the best thing you can do to keep your gut microbiome healthy is plenty of fruit and veg in your diet because the fiber is going to fuel the good bacteria in your gut. And the only time you want probiotics, you certainly don't need to take them every day if you've got plenty of fruit and veg in your diet. That's always the proviso I put there. If ever you're put on a course of antibiotics, (coughs) once you complete the antibiotics, then use probiotics for a week or so. Because what probiotics do is they introduce good bacteria to your gut. So it kind of helps repopulate the gut because antibiotics will kill off a lot of those good bacteria. That said, 
we don't know what bacteria we've got over a trillion different bacteria in the gut so please don't tell me that this little pot of whatever is going to have the right bacteria for your gut because we're all different yeah, so yeah. how the hell would you know all it's going to do is it's most probably picking the most popular ones that we nearly all of us carry that's what it and does. it's going let's put them back in at least that's what it does. So that's really the only time you want probiotics. If you pick up a bottle or the pills or anything, they list the same crap, the same one. And they're they're like there's like a top ten that they put on all of them, and then they have little fillers. So uh, thank you guys for being here, Gary. I think we just made a wonderful podcast. So thank you for taking out time to educate us so we can learn a little bit more. I always learn something when I'm with you too. So it's really exciting. Thank you guys for being here. Have a great, wonderful weekend. And I'll talk to you later. Thanks for inviting us on. Bye for now.